Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. Today we're going to begin our series we're calling Seven, which we're going to be looking at the letters to the seven churches uh, of Asia that are contained in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Today we'll be looking at Ephesus, the loveless church. It's going to be Revelation 2, 1 to 7. For this week, they'll be up on the screen, and you can follow along uh, there or follow along in your Bible. I'll be using the uh, New International Version but hear now the word, the living, living, risen, exalted Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we're going to be studying for the next seven weeks here in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is an easy book that there is not much argument over. Uh, in the church. Uh, actually, Revelation is a book that there is a ton of confusion and wild speculation about. Uh, and this section here is included in that. If you go out and you look for these seven letters, what you'll find is a lot of people wanting to argue over, well, what is the angel? Does it mean each church has a guardian angel and all kinds of things? And let me go ahead and point out to you, it really makes no difference whatsoever who the angel is regarding what Jesus is saying to the church, okay? A lot of people like to look at these and say, well, it's seven church ages that are being represented, and we live in the age of Laodicea. Uh, let me go ahead and say, no, that's not true. It's seven actual churches. We know who they are. We can go back and we can dig up the records. It's seven real letters to seven real churches that had real problems. And so before we can talk anything about what it means to us, we have to say, well, who is this church? Why did Jesus write this specific thing to them? And what is he saying to them? But we should notice at the end of every one of them, first off, they all have the same basic format to the letters. So there's something to that. There's many more than seven churches in Asia, by the way. There's a reason he picks seven. Uh, but also, at the end of every one of them, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church as. 
plural. So every church is hearing the word themselves, but they're being told, if you have an ear to hear, you better hear what the Spirit is saying to all of the churches, and you better apply that to who you are and what God has called you to do. So we are going to spend seven weeks going through these letters, seeing what it meant to them, but then trying to hear what the Spirit says to us and how it would apply to us. So let's dive into the first of the seven, the church in Ephesus. Now, Jesus speaks to his church in Ephesus. Notice in verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And so he's talking to the the church in Ephesus, and there is actually an intricate literary structure that orders why one church is first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. There's a a whole structure that he's got built there that's a chiasm and all kinds of things. But there's another reason that Ephesus is first. And that is if you look at a map here, John is on the island of Patmos, which is the lowest square. That's where he's been exiled. And Ephesus, you can see in the upper square and you can see in yellow all the other cities. And so if one sent a letter and wanted it to go in a circuit to these seven churches, you would begin at Ephesus and you would follow the order that the seven follow. And so he's doing it in part, at least for that reason. And there's another reason, Ephesus is the most important of these cities. In fact, it's the most important city in the entire Roman province of Asia. In fact, it's the fourth largest city in the world at that time. Ephesus had about 250,000 people who lived in it at that time. Later, it's gonna shrink away to basically nothing. This is all in modern day Turkey. But at the time, only Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch were larger than Ephesus. 250,000 was a mega city at that time. Uh, Ephesus was also the economic center of this entire area. And the Roman proconsul, which was the, the Roman guy that was in charge of the whole area, lived there in Ephesus. Ephesus was also a key religious center. There were at least 15 deities that were worshiped there, but the real big deal was it was the temple keeper Uh, for Artemis, the pagan goddess Artemis. And in fact, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest religious structure in the entire world. This is what Ephesus is. And so Ephesus is a very, very important city. And in fact, it was a large, important church in the New Testament and after. One of the creeds that uh, is recited by Christians around the world and accepted by Christians of every stripe to this day was actually put together in the city of Ephesus some 300 years after the Apostle John is writing. So Ephesus was still a major church and center all the way up past 400 AD. So Jesus is going to speak to this church in Ephesus. And notice here that we're told Jesus the sovereign God is speaking to his church. In Revelation 2, 1, and just the first word of verse 2, we read, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know. Then he goes on to say what he knows. So those are several things here that give us this picture. We're told that he holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the lampstands. Well, in Revelation 1, 12 to 20, and I began our meeting today kind of reading that, that's where John gets this awesome vision of Jesus. He hears a voice and he turns around and he sees Jesus and we're told that Jesus is, you know, as 
hair is white like wool and his eyes are burning like fire and he's got a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he's this incredible picture. And John, Jesus' best friend, says, I fell at his feet like I was dead. And Jesus touches him and picks him up and says, listen, don't fear. I want you to rise up. I was dead, but I'm alive. I've got the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. I am the sovereign God, is in essence what he's saying. And then he says, now I want you to write letters to the churches. And he explains in that that the stars are actually the angels of these churches. And he never tells us what the angels are. And people like to, again, they're probably most likely angels. But don't go trying to build a doctrine that Bay Ridge has some angel up there somewhere that is guarding. We're not given enough information because that's not the point. The point is whoever the angels are, Jesus has got them in his hand. And the other point is he's walking among the lampstands and we're told in Revelation 1, 12 to 20, the lampstands represent the churches. Each church, as it were, has a lampstand. And so holding the stars and angels in his hand and walking among the lampstands of the churches shows that he is sovereign and that he's also close to them and sovereign over them. Each of these churches, he's saying, whatever you're going through, no, I am not far and distant. I'm walking among you. But also, know however you're responding to what you're going through, I am not distant. I am nearby and I am walking among you. It's an awesome vision that shows total sovereignty. But secondly, the sovereignty is seen in the phrase, these are the words of him who does it. Now, it doesn't sound like much of a phrase to us, but this Greek phrase, these are the words, it's used only one other time in the New Testament outside of these letters. Um, but it was used all the time in the Old Testament. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint, when you read oftentimes in the prophets, thus says the Lord, it's the same exact phrase. So you can read, for example, if you go home and read the book of Amos, you'll see thus says the Lord to his people and he speaks these words. That's the phrase that is used here by Jesus. It's the thus saith the Lord of the prophets in the Old Testament. But it's more than that because we also read it in the Old Testament when Cyrus the king of kings and lord of lords, as the Persian emperors called themselves, says, thus says Cyrus to the exiles of Israel who've been off, I'm sending you back to rebuild the temple. And it was a phrase that was used by rulers in the ancient world to say, this is the speech of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And Jesus is using those same words here and saying, thus says the Lord, thus says the King of kings and the Lord of lords, this is my word that comes to you. And that's important because this is not the word of just John, it's the word of the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's also important because one of the things many of these churches are gonna be struggling with is, in Roman society, who was it that was viewed as King of kings and Lord of lords? Yeah, the emperor, Caesar. And Jesus is saying, remember, it's not Caesar walking among the lampstands. It's not Caesar holding the angel in his right hand. It's me. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. Caesar is a poser. I'm the real deal. And then finally, Jesus begins the letter with this phrase. In Greek, it's just one word, oida. And it means I know. And he's going to begin all seven letters, the actual letter to them begins, every one of them with, I know, I know. 
And you might think, well, it's just a phrase I know. It only occurs three other times in Revelation. Once we end these letters, it's only three times in the remaining 18 chapters of Revelation. But it's going to occur some almost dozen times here in these letters. I forget the exact number. Because we're going to see later, Laodicea thinks they know. They don't. They got a wrong estimate. But every letter begins with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords saying, I know. I do know what's going on. And so this is a word that the sovereign Lord sees and knows all. And it's a word of comfort because whatever situation you're in, I know. I am not far from that. It's also a word of warning because however you are responding to that situation you are in, I know. This is not simply John's opinion. This is not John, an old man, stuck on, a, on an island out there and just writing some words. No, this is the word of the sovereign God. What follows is the unerring assessment of Jesus, the risen, exalted, sovereign, all-knowing Lord of all. That's what you're about to hear. And so the message spoken to these churches is not a human message, but the unerring message of God to his people. And he still speaks that message to us today. So that's the intro that, that Jesus gives. And hopefully the people of Ephesus were like, whoa. They sit up and they pay attention. And it's meant to have that for us today. So what is Jesus's message? What does he know? Well, he begins with the message of praise. And we're going to see that at least five of the seven churches have good things spoken about them. Unfortunately, two of them do not. Um, and two of them actually only, only have positive things spoken, but most of the other three are mixed. Ephesus is one of the mixed, but he begins with the word of praise for the church of Ephesus, and that word of praise regards their, it's a commendation for their works. In verses two and three, he says, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. This is three words that deal with work. The first one is the word ergon, from which we get things like ergonomics and that kind of stuff. And it's just a general word for work. The second one, where the NIV's translated hard work, is a word that specifies this is work that is toil. It is laborious. It is hard. It is difficult. And the third word, hupomane, deals with perseverance. It means that you've had to continue laboring on. So it's getting harder and harder. This is not just work. It is hard toil. And it's not just work that is hard toil. You have had to persevere and continue in even when you were tired from the hard work and labor that you are doing. And then in verse three, where he's commending them again, there's kind of a word play. And I'm showing it up here. The, the word perseverance, which is in yellow. If you can go to the next screen, Beth. Yes, the word persevered in verse three is the same word as perseverance in verse two. The word endured in verse three, where he says you've persevered and you have endured hardships for my namesake is the same word as tolerate up in verse two. They sound different to us in English, but it's basically you have not endured these workers of evil, but you have endured and doing these good works. And then grown weary in verse three, you've not grown weary. That's just a verbal form of the noun that is hard work up in verse two. So he's just using the same words, kind of putting them in a different way. And he's saying, look, you've done good work. You've, 
You've not grown weary. You've continued the hard toil and you have not put up with, you've not tolerated these evildoers, but you have tolerated and endured whatever hardships came your way for my name, you continue doing. So he is commending the Ephesian church because they've worked hard. They have labored and toiled and they have endured rather than giving in to the evil that he's gonna talk about in just a moment. And they've not grown weary from this hard toil. Jesus said, look, you've borne the brunt of this and you have endured and I am commending you. And a church is commended by God when their faith produces works and when they endure in refusing to tolerate evil and don't grow weary from hard toil. Something we see over and over. Paul tells at one point, don't grow weary in doing good works. Don't give up. You're gonna receive a reward at the due time. Jesus is saying the same thing here to the Ephesian church and he's telling them multiple ways. I've seen it. I know you've worked. I know you've labored. I know you've endured and persevered and I commend you for that. Now the specific work that he's talking about here is testing and rejecting false teachers. He's clear about this. Again, notice in verse two, and then we'll jump down to even verse six. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, and the NIV has it that I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. There actually isn't a second I know. This is a long sentence in Greek because in Greek, long sentences are good. In English, they're not so good. So the NIV's kind of broken it up and repeated that Jesus knows, but it's all the same thing. I know your hard work and your toil and your perseverance, and, and here's, what, here's your hard work, toil, and perseverance. You don't tolerate wicked men. Instead, you test those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you found them false. And so Jesus is specifying this particular work that is really in view. They've tested those claiming to be apostles, they didn't just accept it, they tested it and they said, no, you guys are posers, you're false. And what you're saying is false. He includes specifically the Nicolaitans, and in fact, that word that the NIV translates practices of the Nicolaitans, it's the same word, ergon. You, your deeds are you tested their deeds, and you found their deeds wanting, you found them false, and I'm commending you for doing that. Now this is always a major challenge for the church, that there are always false teachers. There are always those both within and from outside the church that will come in and distort the truth and change things. But this was especially true for the Ephesian church. And we know this because the apostle Paul had warned them this was going to happen. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, the apostle Paul is speaking to them for the last time and he says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that I never stopped warning you for three years with night and day with tears. I've been warning you with this. So Paul had warned the Ephesian church this is gonna be a problem. And notice he says, look, you're gonna find wolves from without and men who will arise even from within and distort the truth. And you've got to be on your guard, Ephesian church. And his warning had come true because John now, some 30 or 40 years later, is writing and saying, Jesus commends you because you did exactly what Paul had warned you to do. 
You tested these people and you did not give in to error. They had tested false teachers, refused them, and they had endured in this hard work from Paul's day now down through 30 or 40 years. Interestingly, we know this continued on because between 110 and 117 AD, a man named Ignatius, who was a leader in the church that was on his way to Rome to be martyred for the faith, wrote seven letters. And among them are a couple of the same churches that are in the book of Revelation. And the first one of those was Ephesus. And he said, your, your bishop, your leader, Onesimus, which I think, if you remember from the book of Philemon, is the same Onesimus who had been a slave that uh, Paul had sent back to Philemon. But your bishop, Onesimus, has told me heresy cannot gain a foothold among you there in Ephesus. And I commend you for that. You are a church who has stood true. You have stood for the truth. You've never given error a foothold. So we know from the time Paul basically prophesied this all the way through the time of Ignatius is 50 or 60 years. And this church has a reputation for standing firm for truth and not letting those wolves get in from the outside and not letting people distort the truth from the inside. And this is a call to you and I. Every church and every believer must do the hard work of testing the teaching and ideas that come to them, whether they are coming from outside the church or even inside the church, okay? I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and step out and say something here. You, we, we have these things in our culture. Right now, we're about to have a major thing, and I'm not telling you whether you can watch the movie or not, but the movie The Shack is about to come out. I read that book a couple years ago. That book is full of theological poison, folks. That is not who God is, okay? If you wanna watch it for entertainment, Watch it for entertainment. Don't watch it to learn about who God is or how to handle tough situations in life because that ain't the way it is. And it's got all kinds of stuff in there that is error. And if you want, you can come see me and I'll be glad to do it. I'm not saying it because I read it somewhere. I read the book, okay? But it rises up and all kinds of Christian artists are making music videos and there's all kinds of stuff going on right now. And people like it because it's kind of about God. The only problem is the conception of God is not the biblical God. Just not. And we have to have discernment regarding this stuff. And the church at Ephesus showed that. And now for them, this probably involved teachings that said, listen, you can join in the pagan sacrifices and rites. You've got the temple to Artemis down there. And we've got all these pagan deities. And this is all wrapped up in our culture. And it's okay. We'll get back to this with the Nicolaitans. You can kind of join in with this stuff. You know you don't believe it. And so your presence there at this ceremony is not actually speaking anything. Just do it so we can all get along. You've probably never heard anything like that. But see, the church at Ephesus said, we can't do that. And amazingly enough, guess how the culture around them responded when they wouldn't participate in these meaningless rituals? Oh man, all of a sudden the fire comes down on you. How dare you say that what we're doing is not right? How dare you judge what we are doing by not coming and participating? And that was what the pressure was for them. And the Ephesian church had plenty of people rise up and say, you can participate. And they said, no, we can't. And you're a false teacher for saying we can. And 
In every age, false teachers will tell us we can conform to the spirit of our age. I don't know what, if Jesus tarries, I don't know what the spirit of the age will be 20 or 30 years from now. I will tell you this, there will be wolves from without and false teachers from within who will tell you, just get along with the spirit of the age. Because they've been here for 2,000 years. There's never an age where they're not here telling us to conform to the spirit of the age and to remake Jesus in our image and in the image of this age. And the church is called to say, no, you have to do the hard work. You have to labor. You have to endure and not tolerate with that silliness. You cannot get along with that. You cannot do it. You have to be willing to endure even when we suffer for refusing to compromise. And so Jesus himself says, I commend you because you have done that. And that is strong praise when Jesus says that about your church. May he say that about Bay Ridge. But, but, Jesus then moves on to a rebuke. And in fact, the NIV begins it with yet, but it's not really that. Jesus rebukes them and says, uh, yet I have this against you, or the NIV has yet, but it's actually a very strong word. It is but. And when God says, but, after praising you, that's probably not good news. <laughs> All of this wonderful stuff, but. And then he says, I hold this against you. And here's what I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. And lest we think, you know, sometimes the, the King James said, you have left your first love. But it's not just that you kind of forgot it. The word is the same word that's used for divorce. You've divorced your first love. You have forsaken it like someone you have left behind. It deals with an active one. It is a very strong word. And so it's a strong rebuke from Jesus. But... I got this against you, and here's what I got against you. You have forsaken and abandoned the way you loved at first. You have done so well testing, but in your zeal to find the truth, you've lost love. And you're committed to truth, but somehow that commitment to truth is not producing love and actual relationship the way that it is supposed to. And so... Scholars here like to argue, well, who is the first, what is the first love? Is it love for God? And some translations actually say, you've left your first love for me. That's not in the Greek. Is it love for believers, your fellow brothers and sisters? We know John likes to write about that a lot. Or is it love for the lost? Okay, because in Matthew 24, Jesus says the love of many is going to grow cold, but this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached into all the world. So the same Dynamics going on, and there's going to be false teachers. And so which is it? The answer is yes. You can't separate those. It's all three of them. You have left your first love. You have left your first love for me. The foundation of love for Christ is the foundation of, of love for all other forms of love. If you're not loving God, you can't truly love your brothers and sisters, and you cannot love your neighbor. The first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the foundation of the second commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so what this warns us is, and this is a scary warning, I'm, I'm one who is committed to doctrinal precision and truth. I love to study and to know the truth. 
But it is possible to be zealous and hot for the truth of God while growing lax and lukewarm in our love for God himself. I can get so interested in the study and the books that God himself is left on the sideline. That is a scary thought. But it's what seems to be happening to the Ephesian church. Passion for God's truth has replaced passion for Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying, I got that against you. You loved me, not just my truth, but now love for me is kind of waning. And if you study the history of the church, you'll find this to be very, very true. People who get very zealous for truth, but somehow the passion for Jesus seems to wane in them. But secondly, and flowing from that, is your first love for your brothers and sisters. Our love for God and his truth must always produce love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John tells us you can't love God whom you do see if you don't love your brother and sister who you're not seeing. Don't tell me you're loving Jesus when you're not loving the very people who he died for. And if you look around and you, you pay attention to this, it is often happens that those who are most zealous for doctrinal purity grow cold in love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Years ago, when I was wrestling through certain theological doctrines, which I now hold, and I believe firmly, but I was wrestling through them, and certain brothers were writing about these, and my very questions were basically responded to with, you might even be reprobate, you jerk. How can you not just understand this and know? Can I tell you that that's a little less than helpful? As I'm trying to wrestle through these biblical texts, and your lack of love for me is not commending your doctrine that I'm pretty sure is correct, Where's the love? And it is a thing that sometimes churches become very zealous for truth, and they're the ones who are most likely over silly things to start breaking down and tearing apart and missing who Jesus is and missing God in the midst of brothers and sisters and wanting to correct everything rather than simply sitting down and loving one another. And so Jesus says, good that you are, you are striving for truth, but sometimes there are hurting brothers and sisters and you are so busy striving for truth, you are crushing and leaving them behind. And I hold that against you. Thirdly, you've lost your first love for the lost. Our love for God and his truth always must produce love for those who are separated from God and who are trapped in error and sin. If I really love the truth, how can I not love people who are trapped in error? If I really love God, how can I not love people who are trapped in servants to the devil? And the call that I have is that we're to be a lampstand. Notice Jesus, and he's going to warn the Ephesians, I'll remove your lampstand because we are a city set on a hill. We are a light, and that light is for the lost. We are to have good works that cause men to praise our Father in heaven. And Jesus is telling them, you're losing the function of being a lampstand. Yes, you're zealous for the truth, but you're so zealous for the truth that you have cut yourself off from the very world I am sending you out to reach. And so it is possible to be so vigilant to protect ourselves from the errors of the world that we isolate ourselves and we lose our love for those who are lost, hurting, and trapped by Satan and his lies. And commitment to truth can never be commitment in such a way that I'm not going to reach out to the person over here who is trapped in lies. We have to reach out to them. We have to have compassion. And the way we come across, just like to our brothers and sisters, it's not helpful when we come out and all we want to do is all guns blazing all the time at them. 
We are in a culture that is confused right now. The most basic things of what it means to be human, we are lost on. And what they need from us is, yes, that we will hold to the truth, but we will do it in love. And we will respond to you as the image of God, and I will love and care for you. And what they should say about us is, look, I don't even like what that person believes, but I can't deny the way they love me. I can't deny that they love and care for me. Even if I'm spewing stuff at them, they respond back graciously. That is what we are called to do. And so we have to be wary of being zealous and hot for the truth of God while growing lax and lukewarm in our love for God and the people around us. Hot for the truth should produce hot in love for God and people. And if it's not, something has gone askew. And if you think about this from the Apostle John, he's the one who records these words of Jesus. You remember Jesus on the night he's betrayed says, listen, I'm giving you a new command. And as I have loved you, the gospel, so you are to love one another. And if you love one another, all men will know what? You're my disciples. See, gospel, I have loved you, and therefore you now respond to me, and you do it by loving one another, and the overflow of that is the gospel goes forth. It's the same three forms of love that we've got here. Jesus had spoken it to the disciples on that night. That is what it always is. The gospel, when we stand amazed at what God has done for us and that this Jesus is the risen living one, he has died for us and our sins, it has to produce in us a love for one another. Friend, you may look differently than I do. You may think differently. You might like different music, which is really a problem because my taste is so good. But no matter what, the issues of differences are, here's what we've got in common. We have been redeemed. We have been plucked out of hell and brought into the kingdom of light. Every other difference pales. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, slave or free, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, all of that stuff doesn't matter. I don't care what your nationality is, what political party you belong to, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything else pales. And then for those who are outside the kingdom, we bear the image of God together. And you, trapped in error and sin, dead in your trespasses, are exactly as I was. And if the grace of God could reach down to me, I got hope it'll reach to you. And therefore, I will do everything I can to pray and love and serve. That's the truth of God. And that's what we're called to do. Can you tell I'm a little bit passionate about this? Now, so Jesus speaks this to them, but then he doesn't just leave them there. He says, let me tell you the way back to your first love. And he gives us several steps. This is in verses five and seven, because in verse six, he kind of goes back and commends them again a little bit. In verse five, he tells us step one, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember where you have fallen. The way forward begins by looking back and remembering our first love. And friend, this is true of all forms of love, whether it's love for God, whether it's love for brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's love for the lost, if it's love for your spouse or your kid who you're wanting to kill this week. It doesn't matter what form of love it is that you are struggling with, it begins the same way. You look back and you remember the good to correct what has gone wrong. 
We often look back and remember past offenses and problems, but to return to our first love, we have to look back and remember the good. If I just take the the thing of another human, if I look back and I focus on what you have done wrong, is that a recipe for returning to first love? No, it's a recipe for me griping and moaning and complaining. And Jesus, do you see all the things they do wrong? But see, you got to remember from where you fell. And I remember back with my brothers and sisters or my spouse or whatever it is, I remember back and I say, you know what? This is the good. This is why we're together. You and I might be going through relational friction, but you know what? Jesus redeemed us both. He brought us together. And he not only redeemed us both, he planted us in the same congregation. And he did it for a reason. And I'm going to remember that and let that cover. Love covers a multitude of offenses. But it only does so if I remember where I have fallen from rather than remembering all of the offenses along the way. Second point, repent. And I don't like that word, so we're going to skip it. Jesus Jesus doesn't just leave them there. It's not just remember. When you remember, repent. So when our love has grown cold, we repent. We purposefully choose to change our way of thinking and the corresponding actions. And repentance, metanoia in the Greek, noia, noeo, literally deals with thoughts. Repentance begins with thoughts. Because if I continue my wrong pattern of thinking, I am not going to change my pattern of behavior, which is why Jesus began with, you got to remember where you fell from. Because if I say, okay, I'm going to love my brother and sister. I'm going to do it. Man, you know, all the things they have done to me, then you're not going to repent. You're not going to change. No, you you change your way of thinking, and I decide I'm going to act in a different way. I'm going to control the way my mind is going and I'm going to act in different manners. Without repentance, a conscious decision that Jesus, what I did was wrong. In fact, I have left my first love. I'm going to call it what it is. It's, it's, it's a wrong thing. It's a sin. And I'm going to call it that and I'm going to repent of that. We're never going to return to it unless we do that. Third point, Jesus tells them to do the deeds of love. Notice, Repent and do the things you did at first. So you remember where you were, you repent that you're not there anymore, and then you do the deeds of love. When we sense our love for God or another has grown cold, here's what we want to do in this culture, and this is what you're tempted to do, and so am I. Well, as soon as I get those feelings back, I'll start acting that way again. Because, you know, after all, it wouldn't be authentic if I didn't feel that way first. Well, hell will freeze over before the feelings will come back based on that. It doesn't work that way. Here's what's authentic. You do the deeds. That's what's authentic. And so when we sense our love for God or another has grown cold, we want the feeling to return before we do the deeds of love. But Jesus says that's backwards. No, no, you you recognize that's where you were You repent of that, and then you begin to do the actions. The way back to a passionate love for God, brothers and sisters, spouse, children, neighbor, lost person you're not getting along with at work, whoever it is, the way back to a passionate love is found in doing the deeds of love. The feelings do not produce and sustain the practices. 
The practices feed and sustain the feelings. Say that again and hear this. Feelings don't produce and sustain practices. That's what our whole culture believes, which is why we can't keep relationships going. It's the practices that feed and sustain the feelings. You want to feel your love for spouse, brother and sister, friend, whatever, start to speak and act those things, and that will sustain the feeling. Wait for the feeling to return? It'll be a long time. It does not work that way. That's why, and it's a good thing. You know, I, I heard a, a guy speaking a while back about creeds, and he said he loved that in his particular worship tradition, they came in every Sunday, and they, repeat, they repeated the creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty. And he said, you know why I love that? Because I'm not being asked, so how do you feel at nine o'clock on this particular Sunday morning? That's inconsequential. Here's what's true. God the Father is the Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, because Christians have been believing this for thousands of years. And how I feel at the moment is inconsequential. I'm going to do the deeds, I'm going to speak the deeds, and you know what that has a way of doing? Restoring the feeling. And so Jesus says, wherever you're at, remember, repent, and then do the deeds. There is nothing to stir up your love for God like doing the deeds of being in the Word, praying, worshiping. There is nothing to stir up your love for your brother and sister like practically doing deeds of love. There is nothing to stir up your love, whether it's for the lost or the homeless or whoever you're doing, by simply doing the deeds. If I ask all of you, when do you feel more love for the homeless? Would it be as we're finishing up winter relief or in the middle of the summer? Be honest. It's when we've been spending the whole week with them doing the deeds. But our culture tells you the other way. Don't believe them. That's wolves from without. Do the deeds of love. Number four, look to the future. Notice at the end of verse five, Jesus reminds them first off of the consequence of not repenting. He says, if you don't, if you don't hear me, I'm gonna come and remove your lampstand from its place. Because see, if you don't remember, repent, and do the deeds of love, you're not loving me, so how can you be my church? You're not loving one another, how can you be the church? And you are ineffective as a light to the culture, so how can you be the church? And if your light is out, I don't play games. I'll simply remove the lampstand. It serves no purpose. And there are plenty of churches that have found their lampstand plucked and removed. But secondly, Jesus goes on, and, and let me say real quickly, this is another thing people do, what bearing does that have on whether I can lose my salvation? None, because he's talking about a church, not an individual, okay? Always remember, just a little bit of hermeneutic lesson here. Remember what you're dealing with, okay? But he moves on and he says, you know, there, there are the, these real consequences are there, but in verse seven, he says, look, if you got an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I know you have labored. 
I know this is hard. And I know right now your love has grown cold. But I am telling you, if you remember, you repent and you do the deeds of love, I promise you there is a reward. I will restore. And my plan will be accomplished. I will restore paradise. And the tree of life, which has been removed, has been forgotten since Genesis. I never forgot it. It is there and you can eat from it all you want. Hold on. Look to the future. You start by looking to the past. You end by looking to the future. This is how Jesus tells us what to do. Now, how do we apply this? And this is going to be very brief so we can pray. Number one, I want to give a word of commendation to our church. This is a congregation that I believe has long labored for doctrinal clarity and purity. If you wanted silly, feel-good sermons, you would not be sitting here right now. And I know that. I am not following the church growth campaign and the way we preach. We're just not. Because if you want silly sermonettes, you can get them all over the place. And I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just not. I'll go sell cars or something for a living instead, but I'm not doing that. Okay, And I want to commend you, and I want to commend this congregation, and we have a reputation for being a church that believes the truth and tries to be clear in what we believe, what we preach, and how we practice, and that is good. I also want to commend you because this congregation has a reputation that is deserved for showing love to one another and for other people, and that is good. I appreciate that we labor. I appreciate that we care for the homeless and the poor. I appreciate that we are kind to the lost who are around us, and I want to commend us for doing that. Love for God and his truth has prompted deeds of love for one another and for the world around. So I want to give a word of commendation that I believe the Spirit would say to the church. I want to commend us for that. Then I want to ask us individually, because I believe that's true for us corporately, but individually, there's the question. Has my love for God or people grown cold? This is an ever-present danger for us. It's an ever-present danger for every one of us. Has it grown cold? And so the kind of question, and I want us to be thinking this as we're praying this week. I want to urge you, we're calling us to prayer. So tomorrow morning, I make a decision. Will I do the deed of love? Will I take time to pray? Will I take that card, email, Facebook post, whichever way you do it, and will I actually take the time to read Revelation 2.1 and pray through that verse and pray those consistent things? Do I love God passionately or do I just go through motion? Now, remember, emotions can produce the love, so I'm not, I'm not against emotions, but we can just kind of do it to get through it. The point of them is loving. I, I remember a time years ago that Linda, one time, I think I've mentioned this before, she, I came home, I gave her some flowers, and the response was less than jumping in my arms and kissing me and saying, what a wonderful husband. And I kind of sensed something was up, and I said, what is it? And she said, 
I don't feel like you put any thought into this. I, I like the flower, but you do the same thing every time like it's on schedule. I'm like, well, because it is on schedule. And I did what I did. The calendar told me to go do this today, and so I did it. Okay, there is a way of doing the right thing just perfunctorily. Okay, that's not what we're called to do. We do the deeds, and so the, the, the thing wasn't, okay, well, then I'll express my love. I'm never getting you a flower again. No, okay, I hear that. You are correct, and I will rectify that. I will continue to do the deed of love, but I'm going to do it as an actual expression of love, not just that way. So, God, am I passionately, not just in love with your truth, in love with you? Do I want to see you? Do I want to know you? Do I want to hear your voice? Do I love people? as I ought. Do I love my spouse? We talked a few weeks ago, the two being one. Do I love them passionately? Not just asking if we managed to not kill each other yet. I love them the way that God has called me, the, the way that I did when we chose, because I can safely say in this, no, nobody's parents picked you out for one another. This wasn't a done deal that you just woke up and was done one day. Do, do we love each other passionately? Fellow believers, do we love one another passionately? Or do we just, oh boy, that guy irritates me every time he says that. The lost. Does my heart break that within a few miles of where you sit right now, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are lost, dead, trespasses and if Jesus were to burst through the clouds right now eternally cut off from us does that break my heart or do we just go through the motions so as we're going through this I want us to be asking these questions as we're praying this week if our love has grown cold I'm not going to go through the steps but you got it right there Remember, because if you're a believer sitting here, your love was hot at one time for God, for his people, people right around you and family and friends, whatever, and the lost. So we remember that. We repent, we do the deeds, and we look to the future. That's, that's what we're called to do. And friends, it can, I know in this culture, it can get hard. But I want to tell you, there is a glorious future that awaits. And if we do this, the reward, nobody is going to on that day say, that's what I got for this. This just really wasn't worth it, Lord. <laughs> Not going to happen. We're going to say, oh, if I had known, I would have labored longer. I would have labored harder. I would have loved more because this is beyond my wildest expectations. Let's let that fuel us. So let's stand together. We're going to ask Jesus to speak to us, and I want to encourage again as you head out, seven weeks, seven weeks, let's pray. Let's seek him. Let's hear the voice of the Spirit. Jesus, 
I thank you that you are the living God. I thank you that you are the risen, exalted one. Jesus, the reason I am here is not because I just like ritual or I was looking for something else to do. I am here because you got up and you walked out of the tomb. It is empty. And you are alive and you hold the keys of death and Hades in your hand. And you are still speaking today. Jesus, that is why we have gathered. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray as we do the deeds of love, as we are looking at your word and praying every day, I pray you would peel back the scales from our eyes and we would see you as you are, Jesus. I pray you would unplug our ears and we would be those who have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. And Lord, as we see you and as we hear your voice, I pray that our heart would be molded and fashioned. It would be filled with passion for you, O oh God, that our love for you would be new and fresh. Lord, I pray that our love for others around us our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family, the lost around us, that it would be overflowing, O oh Lord. Father, would you work that in us as a congregation? Lord, I am grateful. Father, I've been part of this church in one way or another now for 37 years. Lord, I have seen and heard you do many things. But Lord, I don't want to look back not about what you did 30 years ago. It's what, about what you're doing now and what you will do into the future. Lord, we want our lampstand to not only be in place, we want it burning bright now and into the future. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would speak to us, that the, the gospel would be ever fresh in our ears, that our hearts would be softened. Lord, I pray as we go through this seven weeks and as we gather on resurrection morning to celebrate your rising from the dead, Lord Jesus, I pray we would look and say, God has restored my first love. I love him more deeply than I did just a few weeks ago. And I love his people more deeply than I did. And I love the lost. My heart is broken with the things that would break the heart of God. Father, would you hear our prayer and would you work all of these things in us for your glory and our good, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now receive the word of God's blessing. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Go in the peace, love, and joy of your God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.